Okay. Um, if uh, you've been with us, great. Um, you, you're aware of where we are in um, this sermon series. And if not, uh, just to get you up to speed, we are walking through uh, the book of Genesis. So that's where we've been teaching-wise, going through the book of Genesis. So we're going to continue doing that uh, this morning. So I would love to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to sink in. We're into kind of a next movement in Genesis, and I'm going to do some review to hopefully kind of get us all on board. Um, and again, this is meant to be a bit of a, a conversation. So hopefully, if you have questions, you're writing them down, and a lot of things that come up, uh, we would love to continue talking about them further. Uh, coffee, whatever it may be, that's the way it is. Um, and hopefully, new things uh, are being birthed in all of us as we kind of uh, sink into Genesis. We're starting a new um, sub-series within, and what, that's what we've been doing is these little sub-series within uh, Genesis, as we did when we walked through the gospel according to a young Jewish man named Matthew. And so this next uh, little sub-series is called My Brother's Keeper. Cain, my brother's keeper. So that's where we'll begin. But I'd love to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to sink in. Uh, gracious God, I bless you for the gift of this community. God, what you have done in and through this church is brilliant and beautiful, and it is a gift, and I am so very grateful for all um, that you have done for the people who have uh, listened to your voice, have knit themselves together in community, and have followed you in a way to love Walker well. I'm grateful for the story that you are writing in this church and in this community. And God, we want to be a people who have open hearts and open minds to what you are doing. And so in this time, as we open the scriptures and we listen well, uh, all of us, God, uh, my, my heart, my posture uh, of my heart in the words of my mouth, I, I pray just bring honor and glory to you and you alone our Lord, our rock, and our Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. We'll talk about this image in a minute because um, it'll be difficult to, for you to maybe see and you go, but there is an image there. There's something going on uh, within this that will be back, uh, that will kind of drive what we're talking about. Uh, but as we jump back into Genesis, um, we're going to introduce some new characters this morning. As the story unfolds, though, what you will, you will hear echoes of the stories we've been in, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You're going to hear echoes of the story in this story um, because there, there's a lot of um, connections, and you're going to see a lot of connections, very intentional. Uh, but for us, as modern Western people, there's a rather large hiccup in this in demanding that these stories be literal, which can strip them of their meaning and purpose. For example, when we tend to think, Western modern people, we tend to think these stories are about individuals. We hear Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. We think these stories are about individuals. But remember, these stories are written by, for, and about a community known as Israel. What is needed then is context. 
We need context to where these stories came from, how they were put together, how they were organized, and why that was. It's really important because we are reading Eastern ancient literature with modern Western minds. There's going to be a rub. There's going to be a problem within that. So we just have to sink into context to get through it. So some quick review, and then, but we're going to zoom out a bit to gather some of this context. After a very poetic Genesis 1 creation account, there is Genesis 2, which has the divine creator breathing life into the dust of the ground and creating a man. Then the man is placed in a garden understood to be paradise with the divine. One basic instruction is given to the man. Don't eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequences of experiencing the weight of wickedness is devastating to the relationship with the divine, with oneself, with others, and with creation. All of these relationships will be disrupted and it will go poorly. So, ready? And we have lots of slides today because I really hope we can sink into this. Um, so Jeannie's uh, happy birthday, lots of work for Jeannie. Um, in this, I think if I'm right, I think I have 39 slides today. Uh, it's a good time. So here's the, here's the instruction. Obey and stay. Disobey and experience death. But this death is not about breathing and not breathing. It's a disconnect known as exile. You will experience exile if you disobey. So Adam and Eve, in our story, and we find, choose selfish ambition, self-indulgence, and so they experience a fractured relationship with the divine, with themselves, with one another, and with creation. Are you with me? Essentially, humanity experiences an internal brokenness that leads to exile and external chaos. It's kind of important. So here's where the context is a massive mental switch for our culture. We tend to think in terms of the individual, individualism, my freedom, my rights, my choices, my life. Genesis 2 is not about individuals, it's about community, specifically the community known as Israel. The central story of the Hebrew scriptures is about a people rescued from slavery, now get ready, here we go, a community created out of the dust of Egypt, that community is placed in a land understood to be paradise with the divine. The instructions given to this community were summarized in Ten Commandments, four, the first four that speak of the community's relationship with God. The next six commandments are about their relationship with one another or their neighbor. And then it's essentially said to them, obey and you stay, disobey and experience death. And again, not so much a breathing and not breathing, but exile. Does that story sound familiar? 
the story of Adam and Eve. And again, if you're like, well, wait a minute. When this was put together was when the people were in exile in Babylon. That's when they compiled the story and wrote it down. Someone was not a journalist watching it unfold and writing it down as we went. There were, it was an oral tradition. They would be talking about it, but it wasn't written down, compiled, collected until much later, understood to be in the exile. So when they're putting it all together, they're asking questions about how did they end up in exile as a people. So they have stories to tell. Now then, the focus of Genesis 2, and this is really important, the Genesis 2 narrative is not history, but the human condition. Are you with me? That's really important. That's the story they're trying to tell. It's very different in Eastern ancient literature. They're not saying, they don't do what we do. Oh, well, we have to do things. This is the factual, historical. That's not always how it works. That's not how they wrote. They're trying to tell a story about the human condition. It's about our collective lives together. The point is then not, did this story literally happen? The point is for the reader to see how this story continues to happen. The text is trying to be a teacher. The eternal truth is, do you see how this problem continues to happen over and over? Will you see this story, read this story, and get it and wake up and stop repeating this broken story? Are you with me? It's hard for our heads sometimes to get around, maybe because of what we've been taught as we were going, no, 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 here's the deal. Uh, we'll get there. We'll see how this goes. So then, this is less a religious story to be argued about, that's for sure, and more the universal story of humanity being created in the image of the divine, but choosing to live for oneself. Selfishness, selfish ambition, which leads to an internal and external disintegration of all these different relationships. So before we move into our next section of Genesis, I want to just highlight three other, kind of three big themes that you find in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Here are these three themes. Free will, personal responsibility, and the inevitable consequences and impact of humanity's choices. It's what you see in chapters 2 and 3, three big themes. These are crucial as we move into Genesis chapter 4. Now then, let's do that. That's, that's our intro. All right, are we ready? We'll begin with chapter 4, verse 1 in the NRSV, the new, uh, new Revised Standard Version. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Tree of Life Version says it this way. Now the man had relations. The Hebrew word for knew, there K-N-E-W, or had relations, is the word yeda. Go ahead and say yeda. Important word because as you can see, yeda is experiential. Okay? With Eve, his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, I produced a man with Adonai. Now then, first... The idea then of knowing in the Bible, knowing, is not fundamentally an intellectual activity. Rather, as said very, very well by scholar and author and general editor of the Genesis and Exodus Jewish Publication Society, 
commentaries, Nahum Sarna, brilliant man, says this, knowing in the Bible is experiential, emotional, and above all, relational. So that word yada is so important to know to understand as you read the scriptures, because that's a very different understanding of, I know God, I didn't take a test, a written test, and get the right answers. I know God experientially. Are you with me? This helps us grasp that knowing is not an intellectual knowing as much as it is an experiential awakening. Experiential awakening. Next, notice the language in that first um, text there is this. Uh, it's one of partnership with the divine and Eve. Do you see this partnership? I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And that word produced or it's acquired, acquired, by the way, that's Cain's name. Cain's name in Hebrew sounds like means acquired. So, we could go on, it's a whole other thing, let's get coffee and I'll tell you why the name of Cain is really important to his story, to his life, to how this unfolds. We don't have time to dig into it this morning, but names were way more meaningful often than what we do today. That, notice also, he isn't given the name, he just is Cain. It doesn't say, and he was named Cain, he is Cain, which is acquired. So she says, I have acquired man with the help of the Lord. There's this partnership. It's really fascinating. But what we see again is it's no longer that the divine is doing all the creating, but humanity has been endowed with the ability to co-create with the divine. It's a big deal in Genesis and at the beginning. Now, Genesis 4 verse 2. Then she, this is Eve, gave birth again to his brother Abel, or Avel, Abel's name, Avel, means breath. The Hebrew word means breath. So here comes brother, he's called breath. This is really interesting. Abel became a shepherd of flocks, while Cain became a worker of the ground. So in this text, we, we find the birth of a new vocation opportunity for humanity. Shepherding, taken by the younger brother, Abel, the older brother, the firstborn, takes up his parents' vocation of tilling the ground. Are you with me? Good, good, good. Now, verses 3 through 5. Now we're humming. So it happened after some time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Adonai, while Abel, he also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now Adonai looked favor favorably upon Abel and his offering, but upon Cain and his offering, he did not look favorably. Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And you hate when the countenance falls. <laughs> Both Cain and Abel give offerings. Here's the thing. It doesn't say that God commanded offerings, does it? These are spontaneous from the text that we have. So then it raises lots of questions. Hope you see this. Is the divine playing favorites? Why is Cain's offering deemed unfavorable? Well, one help in this. From the text, who is the originator or innovator of the offering? Cain. 
Cain gave first. He seems to be the originator of the offering. That's how it would be understood. Then we see Abel give second, with, his, with the difference being he brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. This is really interesting. Cain does not give an offering in competition with Abel because Cain gave first. He's not competing with his brother. Sadly, many assume, or worse, have been taught the tragic idea that the divine is like parent picking favorites. Maybe you've heard that. Well, he picked them. I don't know what his favorite, what's the deal there? This is not, this story is not about comparing Cain and Abel or comparing their offerings against one another. That's not what's going on in the story. The acceptability key of the offerings are not determined by comparing the brothers against one another. The determination of acceptability is held up to the heart of the person making the offering. Are you with me? It's a big deal. For example, let me give you a different example. I have three sons. Say my oldest son, Sawyer, gets, takes a social studies test. He gets the grade back. He gets an A- minus on his social studies test. Also, my middle son, Eli, he takes his social studies test, different one, they're younger, he gets his grade back and it's a B plus. As his parent, I am not judging them, I am not holding them up based on the letter grade to see who did better. It's not who did better based on the higher grade. The question to each of them is, did you put forth your best in preparation, study, and execution? The question is held up to each one's heart and conscience weighed by their effort. Are you with me? That's how you do it. That's how this is unfolding here. It's really important. So it is with Cain. Cain was being compared to himself. Is this your best, Cain, is the question underneath it. The goal isn't the grade on the report card. The goal is demonstrating a quality of heart and mind shown in the effort put forth in the work. Are you with me? The measurement of the offering then is not quantitative, but qualitative. Big difference. Do you see that difference? What Cain did is compared to what he could have done. The storyteller here is brilliant in showing that Cain seems to be the innovator of the offering while simultaneously revealing what seems to be the birth or the beginning of obligation. Reluctant or maybe half-hearted giving. Possibly even manipulation. And as a side note, which by the way is why we do giving boxes. Because what we are trying to get at is we value when it comes to giving of our resources, this is an act of celebration, not obligation. This is because we're just celebrating what God has done, is doing the joy of God. We want to partner in community to do this. So we will partner with you, Walker Harbor, in celebration, not obligation. 
to give as obligation or manipulation, thinking it will either get God on your side or get God off your back or get church leadership on your side leads to a dysfunctional and destructive faith. Are you with me? This text also teaches us how it can erode the integrity of church leadership to favor people's quantity of giving when it's about the authenticity of one's heart. It's a big deal as a pastor. I have been told before to do things that I have flat said, no, I will not. Uh, what you do, do not get with me is I don't know how much you give, nor will I ever because that's not good for my heart. I don't want to know that. What I want to know is the authenticity of your heart. Give out a celebration, good for you, beautiful. Let's partner together in this. Because this would erode the integrity, I think, of church leadership to favor people by the quantity in which they give, which, by the way, reminds me of a Jesus story. So Mark 12, 41 to 44, let's look at it. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury in the temple in Jerusalem and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came in and put two lepta coins. It is the smallest Greek coin, which are worth a penny. So the text says that's one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. It's a penny found on the ground, basically. Then he called his disciples to him. Jesus did and said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contrib contributed out of their surplus, but she out of her want put in all that she possessed. Quality of heart is what Jesus is up to here. That's all. Highlighting that. Okay, back to Genesis 4. That's just a little side note. All right. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, uh-oh, sin is lurking at the door. Interesting language here. Uh, its desire is for you, but you must what? Master it. That word is mashal. Go ahead and say mashal. In Hebrew, it means to rule or have dominion. Now, if we go to the principle of first mention, where's the first time Mashal shows up in the scriptures? It's Genesis 1, 17 to 18. God set them, the sun and the moon, in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule, to Mashal, to master, to be master over the day, and to be master over the night, and to separate another really key word, it's the word havdalah. Go ahead and say havdalah. Havdalah, separate the light from the darkness. Just as, and here's this beautiful teaching, just as the sun and the moon are masters over day and night, so shall you master desire, okay? or the light and darkness within you, you must learn how to master that. Okay? Are you with me? Good, because it's important. Here's the thing. There's a Jewish ritual that uh, closes Shabbat, or the Sabbath. Shabbat, Sabbath. And the, the ritual is called 
Havdalah. It's replete with wine and sweet spices and the lighting of a candle that ends, this ritual ends by reciting the words, so they end the Sabbath with these words, blessed be he who separates between the sacred and the mundane. It par partners with uh, rabbinic midrash, uh, which says that just as God separated the light from the darkness in the beginning, so shall we separate the light from the darkness in our lives. Come on. Right from the beginning, we are being asked to pay attention, to discern, and to master the desire. Desire is not bad. It's you have desire that can take you into selfish ambition, or you have desire that can have you partner and co-create with God that is good news for others. Are you with me? The, the important thing is to learn how to do that. So Cain, just like the rest of us, is both susceptible to the way of sin, but has been empowered to choose the way of tov, that's our word for good in Hebrew, tov, to choose the will and the way of the divine, of God. And how does Cain respond? I know you and your Sunday school mind, you know what's coming, right? All right, Genesis 4, 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain submits to the internal voice of shame, giving way to sin, choosing to extinguish, ready? Abel or what? Avel, breath. I'm going to extinguish breath from my brother. It's an external action that creates communal and relational chaos. Are you with me? Rather than taking responsibility for his lackluster effort, Cain, he turns on the one who is praised by God, his brother Abel. Cain submits to shame and makes his brother Abel a victim of violence. Cain takes his inner turmoil and turns it on his brother killing him. Once again, scholar Nahum Sarna highlights how contextually this story teaches us that all homicide is fratricide. Hoo-wee. Yep. It's a shattering of community, more so family. Does this not have piercing relevance for us today? Verse 9 of chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That question hangs in the air right up through today, correct? Am I my brother's keeper? Is Cain his brother's keeper? The simple answer is yes. You... Yes, but the text is pleading with us to see how this story echoes Adam and Eve's story, revealing a complexity on the other side of simplicity. This is where it gets easy. Because if the answer is, well, yes, I am responsible, like in, in a sense of, yes, I'm supposed to care for my brother, also where we're going to come to see, love your neighbor, thank you. And so what, but you go, oh, that's so the answer, easy answer, but there's a complexity within this. Here are some connections between Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. 
After Cain kills Abel, the divine responds with a question. Where is Abel? After Eve and Adam eat from the tree of knowledge, the divine asks the question to Adam, what? Where are you? See the similarities? The divine treats both situations as a quest for a missing person. Each quest has a very key Hebrew word in it. And guess what that word is? Where? Actually, the word where is the key question. There are two Hebrew words for the word where. The more common is pronounced apho. Go ahead and say apho. It's fun. It looks like this. And the other word for where is the word I. It's pronounced I. Apho is a more generic word and is used for a basic request for location. Where? Location. I is, to, is not to find out where someone is, but to raise the question, why is the person not here? Apho is not the word used in Genesis 3 and 4. I is. It's really important. It's used as in not to find out someone here, but to raise the question, why is the person here? Adam, why are you not present with me, God asks. Is, is God, lo- I can't find Adam. I'm God, but I don't know where he is located, not what's going on. Instead, Adam, why are you not present with me? Why did you not stick with me in this? Cain, where is your brother Abel? More so, why is he not here with me? It's a very different question. In Eden, the I question is not Adam geographically, but rather, what happened to you that you're not with me? And then Cain is not, where is Abel? Well, what happened to Abel that he is not here with me? Cain, I'm inviting you to be honest and transparent about what happened. Are you with me? The question of then, am I my brother's keeper or am I responsible for my neighbor? It cuts deep in a society that is hyper-individualistic, ours today. And generally speaking, a society that acts defensively, assuming people are out to get us, so that often leads us to treating people with hostility. Oh, I don't know. Hold on. Hi, I don't know you. Why did you say hi to me? I mean, we are on the defense in so many ways. We've been taught that. What what are are you doing? It raises lots of questions then for the American church, which is in rapid decline in terms of participation, which has many pastors defensive and even bitter. A pastor recently posted this meme, we'll put it up, about leaving the church but not leaving the faith. He thought this was going to call out Christians, but it largely backfired because he was thinking his intention is, is under, I, I understand it, is to show that removing oneself from the church puts one in danger of being devoured. Do you see this? Oh, if you wander from the church, you're in trouble of being devoured. Here's the thing that happened. 
The comments came in swift and pointed with a much different perspective. The lion attacking the zebra was the church actually attacking, judging, and hurting me, said many. Whoops. Person after person commented that their experience was of the church essentially responding to the question, am I my brother's keeper with, "Mm, only if you agree with all of our religious rules. Which highlights the complexity of the question. Am I my brother's keeper seems simple. Well, of course I am, but in practice, it has sharp edges. So we have to wrestle with, well, where do I set boundaries? How do I do this? Where is it that you're responsible for things and I don't, and I can't control that? And, and where do, how do I do this? Do you see the complexity in that? I've kept a picture on my computer screen for a couple weeks because I find it a reminder for those who claim to be Christians, so the church, this monument here, this monument an artist created, and you can find them around the world. It's called Homeless Jesus. And it's placed often outside on a bench of big, large church buildings. Asking whether the people who are the church will choose to love in such a way that it will, release, will reach beyond the walls of church buildings. Will your love be bigger than this insulated group? Will it be bigger than a religion? Can you learn to actually love people? So they created homeless Jesus to say, is that what we are doing as we are putting Jesus out on a bench while we practice our religion indoors? So in the the graphic of our series... That's what's behind the pixels is the Jesus on the bench reminding us to always be asking the question, am I my brother's keeper? Cain tries to shrug off. Cain in our story tries to shrug off being responsible for his, her, his brother's well-being. Well, the divine responds. God responds with what? Genesis 4.10. He says this, and the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now, the word blood here in Hebrew is the word damim. Damim is plural. That I am at the end, that's plural in Hebrew. It's plural because the context is emphasizing bloodshed. The Mishnah, which is rabbinic commentary, has the plural to include more than just the blood of the victim. What it's saying is your brother's blood is actually um, ancestral, if you will. It's saying this, you've killed the potential for offspring, Cain. In other words, the Mishnah says it like this. I think I have it on screen. Mishnah, whoever takes a single life destroys thereby an entire world. They take this Seriously. The divine's question of where, along with the question of your bro- or the statement your brother's blood is crying out from the ground, carry the implication that either Cain has fled the, the scene of the crime or he has already buried his brother in the ground, which it's 
Now I've got to what? Cover my tracks. Verses 11 and 12. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain has stained the soil with blood. So very similar to to the curse given his dad, the relationship he has with the soil will now come with struggle and sorrow, but in increased measure. Are you with me? The pain grows as the disregard for God and others and creation is repeated. Now it just grows. It's amplified. Verse 13 and 14. Then Cain said to the Lord, my punishment, that word, avon, actually is consequence, is a better translation. My consequence for my sin That's how that is tied together, is too great to endure. Look, you are driving me off the land today. Circle that. And I must what? Hide from your presence. I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Quick note to show how this story is about community and Israel. Who is is Cain afraid of killing him? This is where it's all sorts of fun, because you know what I hear right now? I hear little Fred in Sunday school pop up his hand at this point and say, "Uh, excuse me, where did these other people come from? Are you with me? This Sunday school, by the way, little Fred's going to appear next week because he's got some questions as well. Little Fred's got lots of questions as it pertains to next week when we're in verse 17, and it says, Cain knew his wife and she born Enoch. Little Fred's going to ask the question, uh, who's his wife? Where'd she come from? Because if we read this story as if it's about individuals, then we think, well, there's only Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. That's all there is on the earth. Clearly, whoever finds me, is he, who's he talking about? Oh, because this is about community. Are you with me? It's really helpful. Now, the Hebrew word for driving off, he says, you have driven me off, is the word galrash. Go ahead and say galrash. It's the Hebrew word for divorce. Yeah. What Cain is saying, what he understands is in his eyes, I have experienced a divorce from the fundamental ways the earth cares for humanity. Providing a stable, safe place called a home. Second, it's capacity to nourish humanity. I've I've experienced divorce from this. It's important we don't miss the distinction in the curse. Cain as a person is not cursed, but the consequences of Cain's choice has created a fracture, a divorce between humanity and creation. Are you with me? Really important. Similar to his parents' story of choosing selfish ambition, Cain's selfish choice has a ripple effect of chaos. Cain's story is essentially a different perspective on the same problem as his parents. What Adam did after eating from the tree of knowledge, what did Adam do after he did that? He hid. What does Cain do? What does he say? I must... Hide from your presence. Cain fears that he can no longer receive God's affection and care. Hang on to that as a question. 
We're getting there. Cain is playing more hide-and-seek of the heart. It's tragic. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, Cain states, I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth, also known as exile. More exile. So let's further tie some clouds together. The Adam and Eve narrative focuses on the role of unrestrained or undisciplined ambition, which leads to an act of selfishness, which is is actually an act of disregard for God. Do you see this importance? They essentially say, eh, we're going to disregard God in this one. The Cain narrative focuses on the result of unrestrained shame and an unwillingness to take personal responsibility, which leads to him disregarding the life or breath of his brother. Ready? You could summarize Genesis 3 and 4 as humanity choosing not to. Genesis 3, love God. Genesis 4, love my neighbor. Oh, do you see how this is tied together? Before before we kind of lean into a summary, we're going to tie things up, there's one more really crucial connection in these two stories. Adam and Cain essentially raise the question of whether sin or exile will remove humanity from the presence of the divine. What is God's response to all this rebellion and disregard? Really, really important. What do these two stories reveal about who this God is? Ready? In summary, when Adam tries to hide, the divine pursues. When Adam and Eve stand naked and ashamed, the divine covers them. When Cain strays through a mix of shame and resentment, the divine pursues, draws near, and encourages Cain to overcome. When Cain disregards and takes his brother's life, the divine draws near to Cain, invites confession and repentance, which is a return. Repentance means to turn or return to God. Do you see how important this is? In other words, what we don't find is a distant God who's boiling with belligerent anger. We don't see God smiting these people with lightning bolts. That unhelpful characterization is not this God. It's just not true. In these narratives, we find an intellectually unfathomable, unrelenting, and endlessly pursuing God of love. That's what this God is like. Oh, you screwed up. Oh, that's a massive mistake. You don't say God going, that's it, I'm done with you. Plan A was partnership with humanity. That plan was never relented. Yes, we have the capacity to take the story way off course, but divine love calls us back to that which is deepest within, to our core identity in and of the divine. Underneath that dynamic theme, we find three other themes of Genesis 4. Ready? Here they are. Free will, personal responsibility, and the inevitable consequences and impact of humanity's choices. Sound familiar? Ah, I see. So our choices matter. They have ripple effects way beyond ourselves. 
More than a similar pattern in these stories, we also see Cain's consequences. They're a little more amplified. Ready? It's as if the writer is, is wanting the reader to ask the question, I wonder what would happen if humanity kept hitting repeat on unrestrained ambition while also ignoring the question of whether we are our neighbor's keeper. I bet if we turn to the next story in the book, we'll find our answer to that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, blinking, flashing sign right now that says, hint, hint, guess what's coming if these things keep just hitting the repeat button without learning from the past. These two stories are pleading with us to see it's all connected. We are all connected. The divine to creation, including humanity, humanity to one another, impacted by one's relationship with oneself, we get this, and humanity to creation, which impacts our relationship with others. How this is, let me just give you a real quick look into that, our relationship with creation that impacts others. Uh, the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania is this organic, Regenerative farming, they've been doing for 75 years, which hit huge popularity in the last few years as we begin to learn some things. Their values, and here's their mission, organic regenerative farming is a vision for working and living in harmony with nature. The result is healthy soil, which grows healthy plants, which make for healthy people. Connection, 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 it's all connected. It matters. Bunch of hippies. Yeah, it's all connected. We are invited to see how the temptations and struggles back then in our stories are our temptations and struggles today. That's how the text, that's how there is eternal truth in the living, breathing word we call the Bible. I'm not an island, nor are you. All of these relationships are tied together in a powerful and deeply impacting way. Can you imagine what would happen if humanity shrunk to living to such mantras as you do you and I'll do me? Uh, I have my truth and you have yours. If we shrunk to these things, things would begin to splinter and disintegrate because we are all connected. Community and unity are sewn together through love, which transcends basic politeness and, oh, well, West Michigan nice. Those tend to be about putting up with people rather than doing life in community with people. The withness is the original divine dream. I don't know if it's a word, but I like it. The withness is the divine dream. Life together is hardly convenient. Honesty, confession, forgiveness, hospitality, listening, these are not convenient and they're not easy. But love transcends doing for others to walking with others. To walk with others extracts us out of the pit of us and them thinking. There's us and there's them. 
Are you with me? We are all connected and we are one another's keeper. I am both responsible for my life and how my actions have consequences in a matter. They either enhance other people's life or they can be destructive to other people's life. To ignore my neighbor can be dangerous and devastating. To simply criticize others from afar is unhelpful and just judgmental. We would do well to clean up some of our hierarchical language that we have of us helping them or us serving them to a posture that simply recognizes a shared life of walking with, being with. Are you with me? Mother Teresa, anybody remember her? Once diagnosed the world's ills as this, well, we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. This month, February, celebrates a lot of quote sharing of Martin Luther King Jr. But let us not forget that he had a very low approval rating in life, really low, and that he was murdered for what he gave his life to. Because he called for humanity to reclaim kinship and called for all people to love their neighbors. In fact, Dr. King said that the first question we should ask is not, what country are you from, but rather, who is your neighbor? Dr. King said, we have to get to a place where we ask, well, who is your neighbor? And then you know how he answered that? We're going to talk about it in the coming weeks. We know the story as the Good Samaritan. This is a call to reclaim our foundation of kinship. It's not service provider and service recipient. I'd say it like this. Kinship is not serving the other, but being with the other, which is God's original dream for the world. If you recall the context, it is understood that the whole of Genesis was compiled while the Hebrew people are in exile in Babylon, The people are lamenting everything that has befallen them and they're hoping for rescue, restoration, and renewal. So the Genesis 3 and 4 narratives are reflecting on how humanity has unraveled by choosing not to love God, Genesis 3, or love neighbor, Genesis 4. How much more powerful in that context then is the Torah which is summed up in what we call the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about loving God. The next six commandments are about loving our neighbor. What are the Ten Commandments doing? They're trying to restore what was lost in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Then Jesus comes and announces the arrival of the kingdom of God, which is visible in loving God and loving one's neighbor. From there, one of the first post-resurrection and ascension followers of Jesus, a guy named Paul, tells the church in Galatia that you can boil all of it down even further to use freedom, whatever freedom you have for unity and community, he says this to the church in Galatia. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for, oh, keyword, self-indulgence. No, 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 no. But through love, become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because how many people go, I love God, and then they mistreat, disregard, ignore, do not pay any attention to other people, their neighbors. Paul is saying, church, he's writing them a letter. I love you. I love you all. Uh, Please don't do that. And specifically in Galatia, what he was dealing with is Jew and Gentile. Uh, Jewish people, please don't tell me you love God and then mistreat the Gentiles. Don't go saying they're not worthy, they're not welcome, they don't belong. Uh, Please don't do that. Put it all together and what we have traditionally known as the Shema. This is known what is called the Shema, which means to listen and obey, that word does, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and it also includes Leviticus 19 and 18. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Although it's simple, it is not easy. It's choosing to definitively answer the question, am I my brother's keeper, with the resounding yes which requires all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, which, by the way, is our very lives, if we're going to do this. It's central to the call of anyone who says, I follow Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. This is how we're going to wrap. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we are going to share in the Shema together. We're going to say this. We're going to attend to the Shema in Hebrew. Then we're going to say it in English. Then what we're going to do is we're going to sing. But here's the thing. We're not singing to recite words, but to reclaim and call for active and embodied experiences of truth. That's why we need these words resounding and echoing and reverberating in our hearts. So let's say the Shema together. We'll we'll do that. If you want to follow me, we're going to say it in Hebrew first. It's a teacher. So ready? Uh, Just repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Adonai Ichad. Ve'ahavta. Et Adonai. Elohecha. Bechol. Levavka. Uvachol. Nafshika, Uvacho, Meodecha, Veahafta, Lereacha, Kamocha, Amin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself amen let's respond with some singing